if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have already probably figured this out, that there's a lot of waiting that uh, God requires of us, expects of us, ordains for us, plans for us, wants for us. And uh, there's no better thing that we could do while we wait on him is, in, is to worship, right? And uh, so I love that song. It's really a comforting, reassuring song. kind of gives uh, perspective, doesn't it? And peace. So, well, hey, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And Chris, I don't know if you can hear the echo in me in my voice. Maybe you can kind of get that out of there. It would be appreciated. Working on it. Great. Wasn't sure if you could hear me back in your cave. Um, But uh, we've been looking at all the passages in the gospel of Luke where the word follow me or the phrase follow me is used by Jesus himself. That was the, of all the things that Jesus said while he was here on earth, that was the uh, most repeated phrase that came out of his mouth follow me. That tells me that uh, that's maybe one of the most important things that he ever said, and it's uh, something that we need to understand clearly and accurately um, and practically. What did he mean when he said, follow me? And so we've been looking at uh, the various times that Luke records that he said that, and where he kind of fills that out, rounds it out, explains it a little bit, illustrates it for us. And so we've looked at the conditions to follow Christ in Luke chapter 9, Verse 23, if any man would come after me, he must what? Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And then we saw the considerations to follow Christ. Uh, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? And then we moved on to the challenges to follow Christ. Uh, That was in Luke chapter 9 at the end there, verse 57, uh, those uh, three uh, individuals that wanted to follow Jesus or he invited to follow him and they gave excuses and uh, he said, hey, uh, once you've put your hand to the plow, right, you can't look back. And so uh, there were these challenges that he gave. And then last week we looked at the costs to follow Christ in Luke chapter 14, uh, where Jesus uh, repeated three times to this large, growing crowd uh, that was following him to Jerusalem, thinking that he was about to put on this great show and overthrow the Roman uh, government and set up his kingdom. And uh, he said, no, no, time out. I'm going there to die. And if you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, you must uh, not love anybody more than me. Uh, You must, uh, uh, you know, be willing to um, uh, surrender everything to me and uh, give up everything for me. And so uh, he said that in in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33. And then tonight, we're going to look at Luke chapter 18, uh, verses 18 through uh, 30. And uh, this is more of a case study, if you will, uh, of uh, what it means to follow Jesus. That's the subtitle, Answering Christ's Call to Follow Him. Uh, what, what does it look like? Let's have, let's have an example. Let's have an illustration, okay, of all that we've been talking about. Uh, let's see how it played out uh, in, in one conversation that Jesus had with the man that we know as the rich young ruler. And so hopefully this will kind of bring this all together for us. 
uh, as we consider uh, ultimately Dietrich Bonhoeffer's statement, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You can just follow along in your Bibles as I read Luke 18, starting in verse 18. A ruler questioned Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and here it is, and come, what? Follow me. When he'd heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Even though this young man lived 2,000 years ago, he is not much different than a lot of people in our world today. Here was a guy who was very religious, uh, who gave the impression that he had a, had a deep reverence for God. Uh, he was a very moral person who never did anything that bad. Uh, apparently, he was faithful to his wife. He never hurt anyone. He didn't steal. He didn't cheat. He didn't lie. Uh, he held his parents in high regard. Uh, and it, it appears that he was genuinely and sincerely trying to do what was right. And it just so happened that he was also very rich. Matthew and Mark and Luke all, all mentioned that he was extremely wealthy. Matthew calls him a young man, Matthew 19.20. Luke referred to him as a ruler. And so he was either a government official uh, or a ruler of one of the local synagogues. We're not exactly sure. Um, but I, I'm sure that others probably looked at this guy's life and thought to themselves, thought to themselves, man, this guy's got it made. He's got money, he's got power, he's got influence. I mean, what more could this guy want? And yet even though this young guy apparently had everything, deep down inside, he felt like something was missing. He lacked something that caused his soul to be restless. He was anxious about the future. He had achieved financial security, but he lacked eternal security. He, he didn't know where he was going when he died. He wanted to go to heaven, but he wasn't sure what he had to do to get there. And he desperately wanted to know the answer to that nagging question that burdened his mind. And so he came running up to Jesus with this sense of urgency, and he fell at his feet, and he earnestly begged Jesus to tell him what he had to do to, in, in, to in, uh, inherit eternal life. I mean, this was like a golden opportunity. When's the last time anybody came up to you or 
you know, you were sitting at work and somebody came up to your desk or you were sitting on an airplane and somebody came sitting next to you and turned to you and says, hey, what do I have to do to get to heaven? That's essentially what this guy asked Jesus. Well, what do I have to do to know for sure that I'm going to heaven when I die? Well, even though you may have never been asked that question directly by someone, I think that's a question that nags a lot of people. And they may ne- ne- never let on to it, but people think that. They wonder that. In fact, you may be wondering that. You know you're going to die someday. We all are. But you're not sure where you'll end up. You, you're a nice person. You try to live a good life, but you still don't have the confidence that you're going to go to heaven when you die. And in fact, there's some people who might tell you it's impossible to know that for sure. You can't. Who can know that for sure? That's, that's prideful. That's presumptuous to think that you can know for sure where you're going to spend eternity. But Jesus' answer to this young man's question makes it clear that you can be absolutely certain that you will go to heaven when you die. Because in Jesus' response here to this rich young ruler, he explained the four things that we all have to do or be willing to do to inherit eternal life, or the four things that we all must be willing to do to go to heaven when we die. And if we do these four things, I think we can be absolutely convinced that we will spend eternity in heaven. You say, what are these four things? Well, let's look at them one at a time. Number one, the first thing that we need to be willing to do to inherit eternal life is to understand who God is. We need to understand who God is. Notice again, verses 18 and 19, a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, here it is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And so Jesus, or this young man came up and greeted Jesus with a very flattering title. He called him good teacher. But Jesus didn't want that compliment. In fact, he refused to accept that compliment because no teacher, no rabbi was ever addressed as good because that was a term reserved exclusively for God. Now, Jesus wasn't denying that he was God or that he was good. He was simply challenging this man's faulty view of what it meant to be good. Good was not a word just to throw around flippantly to describe just anyone or anything. Jesus wanted to get this guy to to rethink his view of God and also his view of himself. And he wanted him to realize that only God is perfectly good or we say perfectly what? Holy. And because God is perfectly holy, completely pure without sin, no sin or impurity can enter his presence in heaven. Again, we're talking about what do we have to do to get to heaven? How do we know for sure we can uh, inherit eternal life in heaven? Well, God's established the standard for anyone to enter his holy presence in heaven is to be perfectly holy or to be perfectly good. So we need to be perfectly holy or perfectly good like he is in order to spend eternity with him. And so we need to understand this about God, and particularly God's holiness. And that word holy, 
literally means to cut or to separate. In other words, to be holy means to be separate from something or to be set apart from something. And so when we say that God is holy, we're saying that he is set apart from sin, number one, but he's also set apart from us. So first of all, he's set apart from creation, okay? That's, that's us. He's totally different than us. He's completely distinct from us. He's absolutely other than us, as some theologians say. Um, holiness signifies how he is infinitely above and beyond us, how there's this infinite distance that separates him from us. That's what we mean when he's, we say he's holy. He's set apart from creation, but he's also set apart from corruption or sin. God is absolutely free from any, anything wicked or anything evil. He's too pure to even look at evil, the scripture says, let alone do it. He's untouched, unstained by sin, unlike us. He cannot tolerate any kind of sin or evil in his presence. He hates sin, and he must punish sin. The psalmist says in Psalm 5, verse 4, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. We also often hear the, the phrase, um, you know, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Well, I can appreciate that. I think there's some truth in that. We, we understand what we mean by that. But we also have to wrestle with the fact that according to the Bible, according to Psalm 5, 6, it says the Lord hates the man of bloodshed and deceit. So how accurate is it to say, yeah, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner? Well, he actually hates it all, the sin and the sinner. And so the first thing we, we need to understand if we want to go to heaven is that we have offended a holy God who threatens to destroy us because of our sin. Now, again, this might sound foreign to your ears, uh, especially if you've been exposed to more of the four spiritual laws uh, approach to evangelism where the first thing you're supposed to tell people is what? Anybody know the first spiritual law? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Again, is there truth in that? Yes, there's truth in that. But is that really the first thing that an unbeliever needs to hear? Because it seems like God's love is placed over and above his holiness which misrepresents God and misinforms the sinner. To tell someone who's living in rebellion against God that, that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their life is, I think is, is extremely misleading. I'm not suggesting that you walk around and, you know, to your unbelieving family members and coworkers and classmates and say, hey, just want you to know God hates you and has a horrible plan for your life. I don't think that's the... Correction. It's, it's just understanding. Let's, let's give an accurate presentation of the gospel, starting with, with God's holiness. Walter Chantry wrote a book uh, years ago called Today's Gospel, uh, Authentic or Synthetic. And he's just talking about what is the true gospel? What was the gospel that Jesus preached? And he actually, um, the book is, is really just a, an exposition, uh, an application of the story of the rich young ruler. 
And if you're interested in this story after we're done and you have more questions or want to dive into a little deeper, I would encourage you to get that book, Today's Gospel by Walter Chantry. And uh, it's a very, very helpful book. But this is what he said, quote, the truth is that God is holy. Thus, he is angry with the sinner at this moment. His sword of wrath already hangs over the head of the guilty and will forever torment him unless he repents and trusts Christ. This plan is not wonderful. (laughs) The modern approach is diametrically opposed to Jesus's method with the young ruler. He did not soothe him in his ignorance, but stirred up fear by preaching that God is essentially good. And so again, there's so much packed into that phrase, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Jesus wanted this rich young ruler to understand. He wants us to understand that God is perfectly good. He's perfectly holy. And in order for him to to enter, for him to enter, and for us to enter God's presence in heaven someday, we need to be perfectly good and holy too. Which, by the way, none of us are or ever will be in and of ourselves. That's the bad news, right? And we're going to get to the good news. He's going to get to the good news in a moment about that's why Jesus, that's why there's Jesus. So the question is, do you understand that? Do you understand that God is perfectly good, perfectly holy, and in order for you to enter his presence in heaven someday, you need to be perfectly good and holy too? Well, there's a second thing. A second thing that we need to do if we want to inherit eternal life, if we want to have the confidence, the hope that we're going to heaven when we die, and it's this, admit that you've sinned against God. You need to admit that you've sinned against God. God is holy. Understand that God is holy. Uh, Number two, admit that you have sinned against God. Notice what he says next in verse 20. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. So Jesus gave a rough summary here of the back half of the Ten Commandments. Um, The last six commandments, starting with uh, the fifth one, honor your father and mother, right? And and, and beyond to the end, they're all about our duty to love others uh, like we love ourselves. And so what he was doing here, Jesus was referencing the law, uh, and he was wanting to expose the sin that was in this guy's life and, and cause him to be brought under conviction. That, in other words, that God is holy and you need to be holy like he is holy, but you're not. And so the, he, he was preaching the law to him. And the purpose of the law, if you've been coming on Sunday mornings, you know we've been going through the book of Romans, and we've learned this, that the purpose of the law is to help us realize how sinful we really are and how badly we need a Savior. And it may sound shocking to hear this, but I don't think God ever intended us to keep the Ten Commandments. He gave them to us to show us we couldn't keep them so that we would run to Jesus and say, I can't do this. I can't live this life that you've called me to live in and of myself. And that's why Jesus came, to live the perfect life that all of us failed to live and to die the the awful death that that all of us deserve to die. And so God never expected us to be able to keep the law. He gave it to us to show us that we can keep it, to force us to admit how far 
sure we fall of his holy standard and that we deserve to be punished for our sin. Romans 3.20, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So Jesus preached the law to this young man because he didn't, he didn't see himself as a sinner before a holy God. Based on what he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. Really? It's kind of a bold statement. I, he, he assumed that he had kept all these things that Jesus had mentioned. He wasn't an adulterer. He wasn't a murderer. He wasn't a thief. He wasn't a liar. He wasn't disrespectful. But we all know that the Ten Commandments are a lot deeper than just that superficial, right, you know, don't commit adultery. What did Jesus say? If a man looks at a woman and lusts after in his heart, he's committed adultery. In other words, the, the, the commandments go, go way beyond just the surface. And so he was, had a superficial understanding of, of the law. But as we're about to see, his refusal to sell his possessions and give the money to the poor and follow Christ exposes his failure to obey the first commandment and the last commandment. Wait, what's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the last commandment, thou shalt not covet, right? And so money had become this guy's God and it stood in his way of being completely committed to Christ. And so his morality and his good deeds covered up the filthy greed that ruled his heart. And so with the help of the law, Jesus sought to expose the impure desires of this rich young ruler's heart so that he would admit that he had sinned against the holy God. He had failed to keep his commands perfectly and deserved to die and go to hell. The question I ask you, have you admitted that? Do you admit that? Do you understand that God is holy and do you admit the fact that you're not? Well, there's a third thing that we need to do. It's not enough just to understand God is holy and to admit that we're not. Number three, we need to be willing to give up our sin. We need to be willing to give up our sin. And this is where Jesus gets down to it in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So Jesus knew that this guy was holding out and holding on to one particular sin that he was unwilling to give up and it was a love of money. It was greed. Now, make sure we're clear here. Being rich is not a sin. But loving your riches is, right? Loving them more than God. Matthew chapter 6 talks about laying up your treasure in heaven, right? Um, that you can't love God and money at the same time. And so this guy loved his possessions more than he loved anything else, including Jesus, and so telling him to sell all that he owned and give the proceeds to the poor was Jesus' way of telling this guy to repent. 
to turn away from his sin of coveting and hoarding riches here on this earth. And he wanted to make it very clear that that he had to be willing to give up what he loved most in order to go to heaven. And if you remember, we kicked off this series on a Sunday morning looking at that classic duo of parables in Matthew chapter 13, the hidden treasure and the costly pearl. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. What's the point of that story or or those two parables? Well, listen, when you come to see the the, 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 the all-surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, that you're willing to give up everything to have him. He's the, he's the treasure in the field. He's the pearl of great price. And Paul, in, in Philippians chapter 3, uh, verse 8, said that he counted all things as loss in compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And so Jesus is the treasure. We, we give all that we have to get him. Now again, Jesus was not making philanthropy or poverty a requirement for heaven. Okay, giving to charity doesn't get you to heaven. Or selling all your possessions and giving it all away and living, you know, on the street, you know, uh, under some underpass, overpass somewhere. That's not what Jesus is talking about. It just so happened that for this guy, this was the fruit of genuine repentance. In other words, it would be the best evidence that he had truly changed. And, and Jesus said earlier, uh, well, I, I should say it was John the Baptist that said uh, when, when he was preparing the way for Christ, he said, uh, repent and bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. So it's, it's one thing to say, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to change, right? But then there's no fruits of repentance. There's, there's, there's what's called worldly sorrow, where you just kind of feel bad about your sin. And yeah, I know I'm a sinner. And man, I just, I mean, I'm, I'm not right with the Lord. And, but it, that's all, it doesn't lead to anything. There's no change. But godly sorrow leads to repentance, leads to true change. Like Zacchaeus would be a great example Right here in the same neighborhood, the next chapter, maybe even on the same page, look at Luke 19, and this is the story of the, of the wee little man that climbed the tree, right? We all sang about in Sunday school. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little me was he, right? And he, Jesus was uh, coming to his hometown, Jericho, and he wanted to, he was, a, he was a tax collector, and we know that those guys had a, had a, had a bad reputation, right? Uh, they were greedy, and they would rip people off, and and uh, they were traitors uh, in the minds of uh, uh, the rest of the Jews, their fellow Jews. And it, and it was true. They had sold out to the Roman government. And so anyway, here's this, this little guy, little short guy, wants to get a, get a peek at Jesus. And so he climbs a tree. And uh, little did he know when Jesus came by, verse 5, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for today. I must stay at your house. I get to, I'm sure he, surprised he didn't fall out of the tree, right? Because that was not what he was expecting <laughs> And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
He's a tax collector. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, here it is, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. So he's immediately convicted about his greedy heart and uh, his selfishness and, and his dishonesty and his thievery. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. Now, he wasn't saying that, oh, because he did those things, he was saved. No, he got saved, and that's why he did those things. That's why his heart changed, because he placed his faith in Christ. And so that's where Jesus was going with this rich young ruler, but that's not the response he had. He was the exact opposite of Zacchaeus. He, he, he clung tighter rather than giving his stuff up. He, he clung tighter to his stuff. No, no I, don't, 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 I, I don't want, don't take it away from me, right? He, he was unwilling to lose his life for Christ's sake, right? He wanted to keep his life, as we learned earlier in Luke 9, so he ultimately lost it. Notice what he says here. He goes, one thing you still lack, so all that you possess, distribute it for, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come, here it is again, what? Follow me. So Jesus not only wanted the rich young ruler to acknowledge the fact that he was a sinner, but he also demanded that he give up his sin, that he turn his back on his life of sin and turn and follow Christ. He'd been following after riches. He said, I want you to follow me. So the question is, are you willing to give up your sin? Are you willing to give up whatever that one thing is in your life? What's the one thing you lack? What's the one thing that's holding you back from being sold out to Jesus? So we need to understand who God is, that he's holy and we're not. Uh, number two, we need to admit that we're sinners. Um, but thirdly, and more importantly, we need to be willing to give up our sin. It's, it's not enough just to admit it. We have to give it up. But then lastly, number, number four is, is commit your life to follow Jesus Christ. You need to commit your life to follow Christ. It's not like you just say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up my sin. And you just stand there. No, it's, it's a, it's a, you give up one thing to do something else. And that other, that other thing is at the end of verse 22, and he says, and come follow me. Jesus called this man to submit to him and obey him as his Lord and as his master. He required him that, that he love him more than he loved his money and possessions, and he demanded that he no longer put his faith in his riches, but he put his faith in him. He wanted, Jesus wanted to be the most important thing in this guy's life. He wanted to have first place in this guy's life. And so he was saying to him, listen, I want you to serve me rather than money. I want to be your new master. I want to be the one that you run after, that you follow hard after. And so he was demanding that he commit his entire life to follow and obey him. And so I ask you, have you done that? Have you committed your life to follow and obey Jesus? Does he have first place in your life? 
Have you surrendered all that you are and all that you have to Christ? The irony of this story to me is that this guy really, 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 really wanted to know what he had to do to get to heaven. He came running up to the guy. And I don't know if it's Matthew or Mark. It says that he actually fell on the ground at Jesus' feet. I mean, this guy, there was a sense of urgency. He really wanted to know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to go to heaven when I die? But when Jesus clearly laid out the steps that everyone must take to get there, he was unwilling to do it. And I think verse 23 is one of the saddest verses in the, in the Bible. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. The other gospels say, say that he was very sad, and he turned, and he walked away. So here's this guy, he came up all excited, had this opportunity, he had a forum with Jesus. I'm going to ask him this burning question. And when he got the answer, his countenance immediately fell, he became depressed, and he walked away grieved because he refused to turn his back on everything he had worked so hard for and spend the rest of his life pursuing Christ. He wanted to keep living his life, his way. But at the same time, he wanted the assurance that he was going to heaven when he died. He wanted to have his cake and eat it too. And Jesus said, you can't have that. And as he slowly walked away, Jesus took advantage of this teachable moment. Notice verse 24, as Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for a person with a lot of money to get into heaven. Why is that? Well, I think it's because riches oftentimes create a barrier or a hurdle between a person and God. Riches tend to breed self-sufficiency and a false sense of security, and wealthy people tend to not sense their need for God. They got everything they need, and then some. And so they put their trust in their riches rather than living in humble reliance on God. And Jesus went on, verse 25, kind of an interesting analogy. He says, for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's kind of a funny picture. I mean, sometimes you can't even get the thread through the needle, right? Most people don't even do that these days, right? They just... I don't know, they give it to somebody else or throw it away, right? It's like, but but you, you can't even get the thread through the needle. Try, imagine trying to cram a camel through that thing. In other words, it's what? Impossible. And that's the point. The disciples got it. Verse 26, then they who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? And I think the reason they asked that is because for the Jews, riches were a sign of God's favor or blessing on your life. And according to Mosaic law, God promised prosperity to those who obeyed him. And poverty, on the other hand, was a, considered a punishment 
for sin. It was the, it was the curse of God. And, and, and so it was inconceivable in a Jewish person's mind how riches could be a barrier to the kingdom uh, of God. They, they, they saw them the exact opposite, that this was a sign that this person was on the fast track to heaven. They were the ones who could give all the alms and all the sacrifices and all the offerings. What they failed to realize, you can't buy your way to heaven. And and Jesus pressed this point further. He wanted his disciples to realize that it was not just hard for a rich person to go to heaven, but it was impossible. Again, it's impossible as a as a camel being threaded through the eye of a needle. Verse 26, but he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. In other words, Jesus was saying here that salvation by human effort is impossible. It's wholly, completely a sovereign work of God's grace. Man is totally incapable of saving themselves. You cannot save yourself. I can't save myself. None of us can save ourselves. Salvation is all of God's work. Man is completely dependent on God to save them, and so there's no hope of being saved apart from a miraculous work of God's grace. And I'm so glad that this is here in our last text that we're going to look at this summer because the last thing I'd want to happen is that we all walk away from this summer study adopting a works-based salvation. What I mean by that is thinking that we have to do something to earn our salvation. Don't miss the fact that Jesus reminded his disciples here that salvation is a sovereign gift of God that cannot be earned. There's nothing that you can do to save yourself. Salvation is based on not on what you do or what we do, but based on what Jesus did. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It's not of works so that no one should boast. So we need to understand that the things that we've been called to do and challenged to do this summer are not just hard. They are what? Impossible. We can't do these things. We we can't pay these costs and and, and, and rise to these challenges and, 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 and consider these conditions in and of ourselves. These are all impossible. But God, through his grace, makes it possible for us to do these things that Christ required of those who want to inherit eternal life, those who want to be saved. I can't think of a greater tragedy than after sitting through a summer study like we just have, that someone here tonight who's been here hearing all of this, would go home sad. Like the rich young ruler. Because you know that you're not willing to give it all up to gain the hope of eternal life in Jesus Christ. 
And if that's all where the story ended, it'd kind of be a depressing story. It'd be kind of a sad story. But that's not where the story ends because as always, Peter, hanging on every word that came out of the mouth of Jesus, acted as the spokesman for the rest of the disciples. He was quick to remind Jesus of all that they had given up to follow him. Verse 28, Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. See, Peter's getting it. Okay, I'm getting this. It's about giving up everything and following you. I got it. I got the the right lingo. It's following you. We're doing that. We've done that. And so he's essentially saying, hey, we we did what you told this rich young ruler to do. What what about us? Are we going to inherit eternal life? Are are we going to be saved? And Jesus reassured his disciples that they would be saved that they would inherit eternal life. Verse 29, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and the age to come, eternal life. I love how that story just comes full circle. How did it all begin? Verse 18, a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit what? Eternal life, verse 30, in the age to come, you'll inherit eternal life. And so Jesus promised the disciples, yeah, you know what? You have given up everything and you are following me. And so you will inherit eternal life. You can have the confidence, you can have the hope that you're going to heaven when you die. He said, but that's not all. Notice that he promised them that whoever gave up loved ones and possessions and would be repaid many times over, not just in heaven, but here on this earth. He said, you'll receive many times as much at this time. I think this is part of that abundant life that Jesus promised in John 10, 10. The thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, talking about Satan. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. See, and Satan's got us tricked. He's like, you know what? Jesus is the one that's going to steal and kill and destroy all your fun. He's going to take away your life and he's going to require you to do this and this. And man, he's going to be a killjoy. No, it's the exact opposite. Jesus said, no, it's Satan who is the one who's going to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life. Satan's so like, no, I'll give you the good time. I'll give you, you want life? I'll give you a good time. No, Jesus said, no, I'm the one who'll give you life and, and life abundantly. And so all that to say, it is true that Jesus demands great sacrifice. That's what we've heard week after week after week this summer. He demands great sacrifice. But don't miss this. He also rewards great sacrifice. And I love what Walter Chantry said in another book he wrote. Same guy wrote today's gospel. He wrote a book called The Shadow of the Cross. He said this, quote, Not one man has ever sacrificed for his Lord without being richly repaid. He said, If the cross is only contrasted with earthly pleasures lost, it may seem hard and threatening. But when the cross is weighed in the balances with the glorious treasures to be had through it, even the cross seems sweet. We all know and love that 
great hymn by Isaac Watts. When I surveyed the wondrous cross, Watts understood that surveying the, the sweetness of the cross should compel us to give up everything to follow and obey Jesus. We sing a, a contemporary version of, of this song. I think it was uh, Chris Tomlin that, that added the, the contemporary chorus. But again, we know the verses. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but what? Loss and poor contempt on all my pride. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were an offering far too small. Even if I had everything in the world, that would be a, 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 a far too small of an offering. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When you consider the love of Christ that he demonstrated for us by coming and living that perfect life that all of us failed to live and dying that awful death that all of us deserve to die, the love that he demonstrated, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you consider that amazing love, man, it's just like I want to give my life, my soul, my all. And then the contemporary chorus. Oh, the wonderful cross. The wonderful cross. Bids me come and die and find that I might truly live. Oh, the wonderful cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. All who gather here by grace, draw near and bless your name. I love that second line there. Bid me come and die and find that I may truly live. Where do you think he got that from? Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him what? Come and die. And he harnessed that, that sentence to communicate the compelling nature of the wondrous cross. Oh, the wonderful cross. Instead of being a, a harsh, ominous looking thing, it's a wonderful thing. That's why I told Junior, let's not make it gloomy looking. Let's uh, make it hope-filled. Because at the end of the day, the cross is a wonderful thing. It's a, it's a glorious thing. And so rather than seeing the death of Jesus on the cross as, as this awful thing, the fact that he was willing to come to earth and die for sinners like you and for me is so wonderful that it should cause us to be willing to come to him and die to ourselves and everything else in our lives that we hold dear. Again, he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us. He came and died. He's asking us to do the same thing, to come and die. And when we do, we experience what it means to truly live. And that's what Bonhoeffer meant when he said that following Christ is costly because it costs a man his life, but at the same time it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. May God grant us the grace to answer Christ's 
costly call to come and die. And in doing so, discover it is actually a wondrous, gracious call to come and live. And when we do that, we will be able to say with the Apostle Paul, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, what could be tragic story of this one rich guy who refused to give it all up for Jesus. But there's a beautiful, powerful lesson here for all of us that you promise to bless us when we, when we do leave everything to follow you. Not only with eternal life in heaven someday, but abundant life here and now. To be able to live life the way you intended us to be able to live. And so I pray if there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that, that they would um, realize tonight that in order for them to really live life the way you designed it to be, the way you created them to be, that they need to be willing to acknowledge that you're holy and uh, they're not and that they would be willing to acknowledge their own sin and turn away from it and commit their life tonight to follow Jesus, to pursue Christ, to want to live a life of obedience to his word and to follow his steps and to strive to be like him. This is a, a demonstration of what it looks like to be a Christian. Lord, would you grant them genuine repentance and faith tonight, Lord, that no one would leave here sad with a fallen countenance because they're not willing to give it all up for Jesus. I pray that we'd all be able to walk out of here tonight with great joy, even as the, the guy who found the treasure in the field, with great joy, he sold all that he had to gain Christ. That, Lord, that would be our attitude, that we would just be thrilled that we get to be one of your sons and one of your daughters. Thank you for Jesus and what he did for us so that we can have hope, we can have purpose, we can have true life here and for all eternity in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.